Welcome, everyone. My name is Michael S. Sieber. You're listening to Equal Chance to Be Unequal, my podcast about unlocking human potential through helping people disconnect from their purpose, uncover, and live their purpose. Without further ado, I'm going to kick it off to my good friend, Michael Sieber. Morning. 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 Thank you guys very much for coming and hanging out today. There, there's so many things about employee engagement and boosting employee morale that I get to deal with on a day-to-day basis from being an executive coach and working with folks one-to-one, but also helping organizations locally figure out how do they drive and create a specific culture. So for me, it's really interesting to see like what are the dynamics that actually move a person from point A to point B in a way that engages the people around them. Right? And there are many, many things that contribute to that based on a number of factors that I'll talk about yet this morning. So what I want you guys to think about is how many times in any given week do you have on your team or people around you, do you have people and you ask people and you talk to people and you have conversations with people where you ask them, how have they added value or generated value for a different department? How often does that happen? Raise your hand. Does anybody, if you ask that or if you have people on your team that are consciously thinking about what they do for other departments in which they don't work? Okay, so raise your hand. Side, a couple of you. Three, four, five. So a couple of us are doing that. Why is that valuable? Anybody? Why is that important? Because non-value added work is like water. If you let it, it goes anywhere. And and, or it's like your weeds in your backyard, right? So you have to keep pushing out non-value added activities to really focus on what is most important. Thank you, I just noticed that um, the employees that I manage, they don't realize what they do. And so for them to verbalize it, it kind of sparks something in them that, oh, I do more than just X, Y, Z. I do add value. It is otherwise, mm-hmm. yep. Okay, so we over here, too. I think for us, we try to focus on how we can be a resource for every department in the company and make sure that our goals are, are in line with what, what everybody else is trying to work towards. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think so few organizations have ingrained that in the company culture that it would be really helpful if they did. Right, so I would encourage you to think about one basic way in which we can boost employee morale is to ask the individuals on your team, what can they do today to generate some value, to add some value, to do something nice for another person in another department, especially if the organization that you're working in functions in silos, right? I bet you that your organization has silos in some capacity. Is that fair? Okay, so it's our work to think about how do we break down those silos. That's really what's going to help us function as a team, develop the right culture, and make sure that everybody is operating at their full capacity. Okay, so there's a really, really important thing for each of us to consider when we're thinking about what is it that we can do to drive and boost employee morale. It's that. <laughs> <laughs> like it really is that simple. Is it not? Am I right? Yeah. It really is that simple. Because we as humans, right, we tend to overthink and overvalue all of these other things that are completely not related to things that come down to the value or the quality of our close-knit relationships. So if we spend more time developing close-knit relationships and giving a shit about the people around us, the probability is, is that we're going to have higher retention. We're going to have more profitability. We're going to be more productive as a team. People are going to want to stay longer inside your business. But if we spend more time looking at the people around us as though they're enemies or somebody we need to compete against, we are not going to be moving the organization forward. Okay? It's a very simple equation. So the more time that we can spend learning those things or giving a shit about one another, the simpler it is. Okay? Very basic premise, but a very important one for each of us to consider. So really basic statistics about the current state of engagement and the morale and happiness in America. 157 million workers in America as of last month, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, unemployment 3.6%. So there are lots of people working, and there are lots and lots of jobs available, and it just so happens that about 50% of the workforce is actually looking for jobs. Okay, so the competition for us in any capacity to be able to bring in talent or to find a way to engage them or keep them is increasingly more and more difficult. Right? And it's not going to get any easier anytime soon. Right? There's so much change happening in society, it's going to take two, three, four more years for it to kind of work itself through to the point where there's some stability. But there's so many things adjusting and changing. 
technology, globalization, uh, different communication styles and tactics we didn't have, remote work, gig economy. Right? There's so many things that are affecting our ability to be able to keep folks engaged. But when you look at this, only 33% of the American workforce actually likes their work. Right? It's a very, very low percentage. Do you guys know that statistic or number globally? You guys know what the number is? Anybody? The number globally of all global workers, only 13% like their work. Right? So we, we live in this world and in this society where the vast majority of the folks working across the globe do not like their work. Right? Their morale every single day they come into work is low and a lot lower than it should be. What do you guys think causes that? Anybody? We're also low. I think because the need to pay your bills okay. um, eventually outweighs your passion for what you want to be in life. Right. right. I mean, that really is the, the core of it, right? It's that K through 12, the university education system, all of those things tell us, society, media, tell us that we're supposed to do this one thing, this is what's societally appropriate, but that's not necessarily what fills us in our hearts. Right? Do you agree? Yep. Okay. <laughs> right? So, you did more? No, no. no. Yeah, that was, I just love what you said. You might think that Kelly should come up and talk to you. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> should, should come. But think about that, right? 33% of the American workforce likes their work, but 51, 50-ish percent of people are going into work. They're what's referred to as disengaged, meaning that they're just doing their traditional job description duties. And that's great because they're getting the work done, but that doesn't mean that their morale is high. But then you look at the 16%, those folks that are disengaged, like really disengaged, what are they doing to your team? Like poison. Toxic. Right? If they're rowing, like you've got 10 people rowing in a boat, you've got three rowing forward, you've got five sitting there with the oars out of the water, what are the last two doing? Back there, sorry. Pulling all the way. Like they're the ones that are bringing all the water from outside the boat into the boat, right? Drilling holes in the bottom of the boat. So there's the two, the disengaged at the very end, that they're trying to pull the team back. Like they're the anchors that are not allowing the team to function productively. Okay? So the current state is such is that we're constantly, as a society, trying to push this very heavy boulder up a very, very steep hill. Because we're each born as highly unique individuals, but yet we've been put into a system that creates us to be very, very robotic. Do you guys remember what Arizona State University's first name was when it was a school? Normal the, school. The normal school. It was straight up called the normal school. So think about society pre the normal school. Everybody was an entrepreneur. Everybody was a small business owner. Everybody was highly unique. And then for 150 years, society has been moving to this place where humans are batch production. They go inside of the system and work really well inside that system. So what we're seeing is, is that we used to have tons of engagement as a society, and then we needed factory workers and people to put like uh, like doors on cars, and then all of a sudden what has happened, right, is that technology and all these things have advanced so far that we don't need that same functionality from human beings anymore. So all of the things that we were in the 14, 15, 16, and 1700s, they're now coming back. Right? We're now getting back to that point as a species. So it's a very, very interesting juxtaposition to watch this change happen from my standpoint because of the research that I do and the data that I see. And so through Gallup and what they call the state of the American workplace, you can see that organizations that are small tend to have more engagement than larger organizations. Why is that? You know one another. What's that? You know one another. Yep, so more closeness in relationships. Yep, what else? I think you're... Your individual value is easier to see in the overall. Um, if you're a cog, it's easier to see your placement in that wheel. Yeah, right, great point. Good. Okay. What else? One more. You're forced to wear a lot more hats yeah. and collaborate with a lot more individuals. No doubt. You get to use more parts of your being when you go to work every single day. Right? Because as a human being, you're not just a person who does one hyper-specific task every single day. There are multiple facets to who you are. And when you work inside of a smaller business, you're asked to do a lot of different things, not just one. Right? So it's easier for us to be engaged in that workplace. Now, more statistics from Gallup. Right? We've got this data from millions and millions of people across the world, and they've shown that only 13% of people who have completed a Gallup assessment think that their leadership team communicates effectively. 
right? So we've got this very significant block in communication down to multiple levels inside the business that make it very difficult for us to boost morale. So that's an easy thing for us to consider is how do we increase or over-communicate to those around us because it's one of the major factors that contribute to somebody being happy. It's very simple. But think about how can you over-communicate to the people that are close to you. And it doesn't have to be releasing things that would normally be covered under an NDA or some sort of confidentiality agreement, but it's just enough to make people feel safe. right? Because that's what's happening. It's like we have very ancient brains, but we live in very modern times. I read a study the other day that said that the human brain has been evolving for more than 7 million years into its current form. Okay, So how long have we as a species been evolving without technology, and then all of a sudden, in 100 years, we have all of this technology, and the human body or brain doesn't know what to do with it? Right? So we're constantly having our amygdala at the very back of our brain and our limbic system. It's being hijacked really recurrently. So we're always in fight, flight, or freeze response. Right, so think about what are we doing for our staff and the, the morale that we have. How do we not trigger fight, flight, or response? And that comes through over-communication. Okay, pretty basic thing, but important. You can also see some stats from Gallup about the fact that ladies tend to be just a little bit more engaged than men, uh, or that baby boomers are just a touch more engaged than millennials. So why would a baby boomer be happier or have higher morale at work? They're almost done. <laughs> 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 That's a great one. <laughs> like the, the pain is about ready to subside. Okay, what else? They might be more in the know because they might be at a higher level. So access to more information, right? What else? They've had plenty of time to succumb. <laughs> <laughs> they bought into the system for a long, very long period of time. Or conversely, maybe they've had a chance or more opportunity to work to the point of doing the work that they really want. Yeah. Right? So there's a happiness factor there. There's a morale there. Okay? What else? Any other thing? Okay. I also love the fourth line here about higher educational attainment doesn't equal higher levels of engagement. So just because somebody has very advanced degrees doesn't mean that they're going to be more happy at work. Humans have a very, very innate need to continue learning, so please continue learning in the appropriate manner for you, and there are multiple methods by which all humans learn. But just understand that just getting that extra master's, getting that PhD or that EDD is not going to make you like happier at work, right? It's not going to boost morale. But as leaders, you should still encourage the folks to get it, right? Because humans have that desire and that need. One of the final stats here is that through all of Gallup's work around morale and around happiness and around engagement, what they found is that the organizations that were in the bottom quartile of all of their research, as compared to folks at the very top quartile, the top quartile was 17% more productive. Right? Their team was literally producing that much more goods, services, or whatever. But they were also not 21% more profitable. Right? So there's a very significant business case to do this. Right? There's a very significant business case to ask the people inside your organization to figure out how to foster those one-to-one -one relationships in a meaningful way because it's going to make your company more money. But we don't think about that because it's not necessarily taught to us through K-12 or through university or through the things that we see online or on the news. It's just not there, but it should be. Okay. So the current state is that we're pushing a very large boulder up a very steep hill. It's hard to find that morale, but there are ways that we can get through it. So one of the ways that I think about this is through generational similarities. And the way that I look at the different generations is I equate them to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So on the right, you see Maslow's hierarchy, and you think about what was happening for every single individual as we go through life to try to find safety, security, and the purpose and meaning for ourselves. And when you look at the right-hand side, we all want those really, really basic needs met. We need to have the food, the water, the warmth, and the rest. But we need to have that at its core. And then once we have that as a species or as a person, we can then go to the place of having a roof over our head, making sure we have a job and some income. We have to make sure those things exist. But then the next thing is that we want to get to the point of having meaning through relationships. And it can come from a spouse or a partner or family, or it can come from other people that are close to us at work. So as we move up this ladder, we find more and more meaning and purpose for ourselves. But we have to keep working up that. So the reason why I put on the left-hand side the different generations is that I'm always very cognizant of what was happening at the time in history when a specific person was being raised. Okay, so we'll use the baby boomers as an example. So folks before born between 46 and 63. 
what was happening in society at that point in time? World War. Okay, World War, Vietnam War. What else? Marijuana? <laughs> Some marijuana. Hippies, right? All of that stuff. What else? Red Scare. Red Scare, right? We're kind of getting to the beginnings of the whole war, yeah? Okay, so think about that in equation to are people now at the point of needing safety? So if my parent is a traditionalist born during a phase in time where we did not have security, right? We, where there was world wars, there was depression, there was all of these things happening. What do you think a traditionalist parent is going to teach a baby boomer? Find security, stay in the job long-term, cradle to grave employment, do everything you can to take care of the corporation, the church, the government, whatever that is. So the baby boomer was ingrained from a very young time in life to think that that safety and security was the right approach. But what happened as our society advanced, right, is that we moved past that. So people who are in the millennial generation, born between 80 and 2000, did they have to deal with the same societal constructs that the baby boomers did? No. Like the economy had advanced rapidly, did it? So the economy had moved forward so much that the millennial generation didn't have to worry about essentially the first three, possibly four rungs of Maslow's hierarchy. So why is it that a millennial changes jobs every 1.4 years? Because they're looking for self-actualization, right? All of the other things have been met because their parents and grandparents created an environment in which they can feel safe, not to worry. So think about that when you think about the persons on your team, right? If you know the ages of the individuals that you're working with and you want to find a way to boost his or her morale, think about their age, think about the context in which they were raised, look at this chart and say, okay, when I go and talk to this person, he or she's a baby boomer, I need to think about what can I say that's going to give them safety and security. But if I go and talk to a millennial and I want to give them a morale boost, what can I say or ask them that's going to help them feel closer to their life's mission? Okay. So in general, right, we can stereotype at least a little bit based on the age range to know how it is that a person is going to develop. Sometimes when I talk about this particular topic at length, I ask the audience if anybody in the audience chose to be born. <laughs> like, think about it. Did anybody in this room choose to be born? No. I did not choose to be born in 1980. It was not my choice. Okay? Each person in this room is the same thing. You did not choose to be born when you were. So why is it that one generation gets so frustrated with another generation? Like, why does that happen? Or am I just crazy? No. Kelly's like, yes, you are crazy. <laughs> so is it fair to look at the world through that lens to say, let's pay more attention to the environment and the context in which a person was raised, how that shaped their mindset about what is right or wrong, how do we then help them understand to add value to other people around them? Okay. So look at generations in the ways that they're more similar than the ways that they are dissimilar. And there's a great book by a lady named Jennifer Deal out of the Center for Creative Leadership that talks about the 10 principles in which all humans are the same. Because we are way more similar than we are dissimilar. But the mainstream media will have you believing everything but that. Right? They will find every way on the planet to figure out a way to divide and conquer. So you have to stay away from that. But a couple of major things from Deal's research right, is that we all want to be trusted. We all want to be respected. We all want to learn. And actually, number 10 on her list is that we all want a coach, right? And I don't say that for myself selfishly. I say that because I want you to think about who are the people that are close to you that can coach and mentor and counsel and consult you because we all want it, right? I have a therapist. I have a counselor. I have an energy healer. I have an executive coach. I don't have a problem saying that at all, right? Because it's the very thing that allows for me to feel high amounts of morale in the work that I do. Think about that for the people close to you. If your organization has the ability to bring those people on staff in some way, please allow them freely to talk to your team members because a fast way to boost morale is to give them access to a third-party subject matter expert that can help them through the stuff they're dealing with. Because I promise you what's happening at home, is it coming to work? Yes. Is the stuff that we're doing at work also then going home? Right. There's always this kind of interesting picture for me when you think about work and life balance, you think about the justice kit scales, and you think about, okay, well, how do we ever find work and life balance? There's only ever one point on that journey that they're ever in alignment. 
Now, the likelihood of us finding that for ourselves is basically zero, right? Because things happen. We're getting extra degrees and certifications. We've got family. Things are changing in our job. We're moving to a different place. We have so many things that are just or change. We can never find that balance. But what we can find is integration. Okay? We can find a way to integrate those various pieces of our life meaningfully. Does anybody here feel comfortable with the integration piece for themselves? Like you're doing it relatively well? Yeah. Anybody want to share an example? I'll share. Okay. So you just mentioned you have a coach, a therapist, all the same. I have the same. And so what I found some synergy in our business is when we brought in an outside coach and really helped me kind of work through my processes and then kind of push that out to the rest of my team members and freely saying, I pay this guy a monthly fee, call him, have coffee with him, go to lunch, go talk freely with him. He's not my spy. He's not reporting back to me. Utilize him. And so now we can kind of see we're looking at the same picture. Yeah. So I think that, that your words ring true and it, it does help. So my question is that, and I was thinking it when you were bringing it up, and it, it relates to um, a friend of mine that is a coach, and she was hired by the sports team, but because she was hired by that sports team, she worked for that owner, and she basically traveled with the team, and all of those players were supposed to, like, vent to her and stuff, but there was still an element of, you're reporting back to the owner, because sure. you're on the payroll, and have you have gotten any of that? Yeah, I mean, there's a trust piece that has to be there, and I do pay him. He does report back to me, but I don't ever go back to them and say, right. Ross told me this. Right, right. So it's a cautious boundary. Sure. But, but like, as long as it's embraced and yeah. people use it and, yeah, and they are using it. It. Yeah. it did take a little while to get that trust piece in there. Yeah. But um, ultimately, I, I really don't care what they talk about as sure. long as they're talking. Yeah. And he doesn't report back to word right. for word what, what's but it's been a good um, guidance piece for me to know where he'll tell me, you need to put in a little extra time with this guy. We had lunch, and he's feeling a little X, Y, Z. And so it doesn't tell me everything about it, but it gives me some direction on, on where to focus more energy. Brilliant example. Yeah. Um, um, Tim Ferriss has a great podcast where he recently interviewed Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google for a number of years. And they did a great back and forth about a book that Eric co-wrote called Trillion Dollar Coach. And it's essentially about the journey of a guy named Bill Campbell, who coached all of Google's executives at the same time as coaching all of Apple's executives. Yeah. Like, straight up coached both of them at the same time. So think about the trust that had to be established amongst both of those teams and those executives, because Bill knew everything. Everything. There might have been some sort of an insurance policy. But the point about Bill, or the fun thing about Bill, is that Bill, not once in his entire life from Apple or Google, collected a dollar in payment. The dude did it completely free. So when you think about the last decade and all of the growth and development for Apple and Google, it was facilitated by a guy named Bill Campbell for free. Why? He made a bunch of money in his previous life, so he's like, yeah. oh, it was just wow. like, you get to the point of self-actualization on this chart, which is where Bill was. Yeah. He's like, I don't need more money. And if he needed anything, they could easily provide it. Yeah. Right? But he was there, to both Kitty and Deborah's point, like he's there providing that temporary boost, sometimes that band-aid solution for morale to pick it up just enough to get people to continue to advance forward towards that profitability and that productivity. Okay. So Keep an eye on that specific podcast episode because it'll really trigger a lot of things for you that you just wouldn't have thought of, right? You see it by the media, what's happening at Google and Apple, but then when you really know kind of what was happening behind the scenes, it gives you a different window through which to look at, okay? So I'm a big fan of generational similarities. Now, another thing um, I put down in the bottom left-hand corner there, vulnerability is sexy, and I, I mean that really specifically. Is that I have a shirt that says it. It says vulnerability is sexy. And when I walk around wearing it, I always get stopped. Somebody wants to take their picture with me because I'm wearing the shirt. But it's because we're moving to a place in society where we're talking about the very things that we do and that we like to do and who we are and our journey is becoming more and more accepted. So Google, for two years, tracked 180 of their project teams to understand morale, to understand what it was to make one team more productive than the other. And you can see the five things from five being of least importance to one being the most important. And so was it important that the team member thought that, they're, that they were having an impact? Yes. So if you want to boost morale, find a way to have the employee see 
that their work is having a direct impact on your strategic initiatives or on some community event, whatever that thing is. You pick. Make that direct link for them in a meaningful way. Now, number four, right, does the work that is happening on a day-to-day -day basis, those tasks and responsibilities he or she is doing, can the person see how he or she is growing and finding meaning in that day-to-day -day work? You want to boost someone out? Figure out a way to have the person talk on a week-to-week -week basis about how they're learning and growing and developing through the stuff that they're doing day-to-day. Very basic, very simple, but very important because most organizations won't take the time to ask those questions. Okay, really small and simple. The third one, structure and clarity, is that do we have very recurrent meeting structures, right? Are the things that we're doing, are we all aligned and moving towards something purposeful, right? And if we set some sort of a strategic goal or objective, how do we know that every single person on the team is doing that thing or doing work that's connected to that thing? And if people can see on an intranet or some sort of dashboard that this is the goal we're all working to, and then people look at their own annual goals and they see how they're driving towards that, the probability of them being more happy is very high. Okay? Small thing, but really important. Second, right, dependability. What is it that we do in terms of peer accountability? How do we drive accountability amongst ourselves from our colleagues? So the way that I've seen this work the best inside organizations is to make the goals uh, public in a very transparent place. So if all of the goals are posted publicly, and you could assign like a red, yellow, or green light to where a person is inside their process, but the more transparent it is, the simpler it is for another team member to go and remind him or her to do something they're supposed to be doing. But if nobody else knows what it is that's supposed to be done, then how are they going to remind them? Okay? We need to make sure that as many opportunities as possible exist to make sure that we're reminding people of what it is that they're doing every single day and how it contributes to the larger goal. But number one, most importantly, is this idea of psychological safety, right? Vulnerability in this context truly is sexy because what they found is that the highest performing teams were the ones that basically did two things. Number one, conversational turn taking, right? So you get into a dialogue with your team and every single person around the table adds value to the discussion. What I mean by that is that sometimes if we're struggling, I will have people do a yes and activity. So you sit at the table, one person says an idea, the next person says yes and, and keeps going around the table until 10, 11, 12 new ideas have been brought forth. Right? You're not allowed to say no. But if people over a period of time are allowed to take turns in conversation, they're going to come up with new ideas that are going to add way more value to the team than anything else that happened before. Secondarily here, this idea of taking risks is that humans have a very, very innate need to want to take risks and to do things that add value to the team, but they don't feel safe or comfortable doing anything that's risky because they might feel shame. Right? Anybody follow Brene Brown? A couple of you guys, okay. So Brene Brown is fantastic at talking about uh, shame and vulnerability. Right? That's a lot of her work, it's very purposeful. But what we have to remember is that in order to get to that point of vulnerability and taking risks, we have to be okay with shame. Or we have to create a culture that doesn't shame people for their ideas. So think about those meetings that you're having on a regular basis. Are your other colleagues congratulating somebody for coming up with a new idea? Or are they saying that idea is stupid? Okay. I worked with one um, organization that they saw a lot of stuff online. And internally, we created something called the Idea Vault. And the Idea Vault was any person on the entire team, regardless of location, could submit an idea in, and then the rest of the team was allowed to basically give it stars and vote on it. And the ideas that received the most support from all of the peers and colleagues were was the idea that rose to the top and or the executive committee would then vote on and say, yes, we're going to do something about this. We're going to actually make this operational. We're going to save some money. We're going to make some money. We're going to launch a new product, right? whatever that is. So if you create reward systems that allow for more discussion, more risk-taking, more dialogue, you're going to have a lot more success. Okay? Very basic, very simple, but also really important. Okay? So Google's Project Aristotle, you can look it up, the, the rework site, um, they've got templates and frameworks and all of this information that can help you take that, that information and that idea and literally apply it to your business if you want to. Okay? Another thing, let's talk about organization and mission, right? We want to drive morale. Anybody who was at my workshop on Friday saw this chart. This is essentially the step-by-step -step process that I utilize when I'm coaching a person 
to understand his or her mission. So what I'm looking for is a basically a data collection on him or her, right? What's his or her communication preference or style? DISC, Emergenetics, Hogan, Colby, uh, Predictive Index, Deborah and I were talking about. There's a lot that exists out there, but we all have a communication preference, the how and what of what we do. So if we know that, we know how a person prefers to communicate, can we tailor communication to him or her? Of course. Second thing, motivators. There are 12 major human motivators. So if you know a person's motivator, which I'll talk about in a second, then it's very simple for us to know what projects and things to give him or her to boost their morale, to excite them, to make them interested. Right? But if they're doing work that's not connected to a motivator, they're not going to want to do the work. Same thing with core values. On Friday, we used a 50 card, 50 card card deck, and people went through an activity where they had to take these 50 core human values and break them down to six. That's hard, right? To take these 50 that you think are important to you, or what society says is appropriate, and to go from 50 down to six and say, these are the things I'm going to make my life's most difficult decisions by. Right? But it's a valuable activity. The Q&A piece, this is a little bit ethereal, but I always ask my clients a very specific set of questions that are meant to pull out their life's narrative, really specific moments in their life that have really helped to define who they are, why they do what they do. There's a reason why each person defaults to participating in specific philanthropic organizations or giving to specific causes. And it's because of something that happened in their childhood or their teenagers. So if you can see those patterns, you can then help them to engage things that are more meaningful for them. Okay, more thing. And the last one, authority. We all have degrees and certifications. We all have accomplishments that we've driven. I want to know what those things are to be able to help pull data about a person to know how do we then convert all of that data into patterns that we can then write that individual's mission, goals, and executive branch statement. Every organization that you have worked with has a mission, has a value proposition, has core values, right? So every single person in this room could have them too. Every single person. So then think about the persons on your team. How do you ask them the questions that will then help pull out some of this information about them? Because as soon as you know how to connect the organization's mission and the person's mission, you are going to drive morale through the roof. It's a very simple connect connection, but not very many people do it. So that's why understanding what his or her mission is and then saying, hey, you value this, this is your mission, here's the organization's values and mission, here's why you're doing this, right? There's a connectivity there. Powerful. So be thinking about that for the folks that you work with. How do you connect their personal mission and your company's mission? Okay. Another thing is I use the disc. Deborah and I were talking about this before we got started. So for me, I'm certified in this uh, assessment. Anybody done the disc? Who's done the disc? Most of us have. Okay. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the importance of tailoring communication. So when I look at this particular chart, I'm hyper-focused in on the individual's fear. And you can see in each of the quadrants, there's a fear area there. So my work as a, as a coach is to help the leader or the person that I'm talking to know how not to trigger someone else's fears. Okay? That is a lot of what I spend my time on. Because leaders sometimes say and do things that automatically trigger another person's fear. And that's what causes them to go down this rabbit hole that adds no value to the business. Like no value whatsoever. So it's really important that we think about how do we not trigger a specific fear. And so I'm more of a C, like I'm in box 22 on this particular chart. So for me, my fear is criticism of my work product. Right? So I try really hard to make things that are nice and to put a lot of work out there and to do it at some level of quality. So when somebody comes back and says, hey, your slides look like shit, or your presentation suck, or something along those lines, like that's hard for me. And it's, I willingly accept the feedback purposely because I want to grow and develop and help more people. So if somebody wanted to make me disengaged or help me to like lose some sort of a harmonious connection to the business, tell me how much my work sucks. Okay? So think about the accountants and think about the engineers and think about those folks that are introverted and really task-oriented, and you say anything to them that makes them think that their work product is not good, they are automatically going to go to Murphy's Law everywhere that could go wrong, something's gonna go wrong, something bad is happening. Their brains are gonna go there, okay? So be very, very mindful of that, saying, if I wanna boost morale, one of the best ways to do that is to not trigger a person's fear. And it's a very simple thing, but we have to be mindful of it because it's not something we're taught. Okay, does that ring a bell for you guys? 
you guys are looking up at the chart saying, well, which one's my fear? Right? Saying, like, which one am I? What I So now that you maybe look at this chart or I can have Lindsay send it out to everybody or something, like, take a look at this in more depth. Because when you really assess where you're at compared to this chart, it's really helpful to understand what are your fears, right? What's your communication preference or style? What is it that you do when you're in conflict or negotiation, right? And they're very specific things that we all do. All right, so another thing is here's the 12 motivators that I talked about earlier. Won't spend a lot of time on this, but just be aware that these 12 motivators exist. So for each person on your team, they're going to have four that are going to be very important to them. So how do we pull out from that individual what those four are, and then how do we purposely, every single day, figure out a way to do more of that for him or her? Okay, as an example. On the right-hand side, you see kind of down to the bottom, to the right of power, it says commanding. So a person who's high commanding likes to have control over his or her own destiny. Right? They like to be in leadership capacities. They like to be overseeing a large budget. They like to oversee a team. Now what happens if you have a person on your team that's high commanding, but they're number five out of six in your business? What's going to happen to them? How happy are they going to be? Not very happy. Okay. So as leaders, we recognize that and understand what projects and what special things can we create for them that are going to allow them to feel some sense of happiness or boost their morale temporarily so that as they're growing and developing to become a leader inside of a department, that they're okay, right? Otherwise, they're going to leave the organization. Now, up in the, the yellow section where it says resourceful on the right, a resourceful person is somebody who likes to make money. They're very efficient. They love ROI. They're trying to get to the point of becoming wealthy. So if you have a person on your team who's resourceful, but they're making $35,000 a year working in a not-for-profit, are they going to be happy? No. no they're not going to be happy. So, and conversely, right, if somebody is selfless and you put them into a role or into a business that is very, very hyper-focused on wealth production, not going to be happy. Okay? So this is the type of specificity that I think we can all get to to find the point of engagement for people or get them to the point of being reasonably happier to find ways to lose them around. Another thing here is um, something for morality for me is involving people in change initiatives. And this chart came from uh, Managing Transitions, a book that was written by William Bridges a long, long time ago. But it's a very, very, very important book because when humans are going through change, and every single person in this room is going through some change, we have to facilitate ourselves and others through these three steps. And if we don't, if we automatically move a person from, hey, this was your role yesterday to tomorrow, you need to start doing this, they're going to be incredibly pissed off. Because we didn't facilitate them from left to right. We didn't allow for them to emotionally let go of the past to purposely step into a neutral zone where they can understand the past but also get little tastes of the future and then confidently move them into the future and help them see the value that the future holds for them. Because we, our brains, automatically go to the place of the worst thing that can possibly happen will. But if we move people slowly through a three-step process to get them to the point of knowing what's coming or to knowing how they can add value, that's really powerful. Because people tend to support what they help to create. Very basic, it's very simple. Okay. But if they're not involved in the change management process, if they're not involved in the creation of what's coming next, the probability of them having very low morale is super high. Agreed? Okay. Nobody's written any questions over there on the board either, so don't forget about that. Maybe you just have them. I have okay. a few here, so don't watch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's going to be an all-afternoon thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get lunch. <laughs> yeah. like, um, so this is a big one. Right? If you want to boost morale, understand that change is very prevalent throughout a person's entire life and that we have to ask questions that are we moving them from left to right safely. Okay? Because if not, they're going to respond with fear and it's going to go to places that we didn't need it to. So when I think about expectations, maintenance, um, and I think about these couple of things, what I like to do with the team that has been struggling to communicate effectively is what you see on the left-hand side, which is give teams two weeks to think about the things on the left, and each individual is given two weeks of time before the meeting to say, how is it that I want everybody else on the team to communicate to me, 
How is it that I don't want people to communicate to me? What are the three things that really motivate me when I'm at work? Right? What are the expectations I have of my colleagues? What are the things that I want them to do for me and for themselves and for their team? And then how is it that I prefer to receive appreciation? Everybody's different in that way. Some people have done five love languages. Some people have done languages of appreciation. Raise your hand. Like most of us. Okay. So that's great. That's amazing. So good for you guys. Because knowing that about the self helps to understand how is it that we're going to deliver appreciation to people around us, but then also recognize how is it that a person actually wants to receive it. Because that could be two totally different things. So the five love languages is like geared a little bit more towards like a romantic relationship, but languagesofappreciation.com, same company, same question, same content, uh, is just presented in a way that's safe inside of a company. And it's the same stuff. So if you choose the one that you want to take. The point is, is that we all receive it differently. So I'm a words of affirmation guy, so just to simply thank you or I love you, good, right? But people who are like receiving gifts, thank yous and I love yous don't come from them, right? They would rather receive something or give you something in exchange. Not right or wrong, just different. So you want to boost morale for someone on your team or your entire team, figure out a way to show appreciation to them in a way that matters to them. Not just the standard recognition systems, not just the standard quarterly pay increases and all that stuff. Those things are nice. Those are expected compensation. Right? Their brains are literally thinking of them as expected comp. So move to the place of in the moment, on the spot, feedback in a way that's meaningful to them. That's powerful. So if you have that meeting, and you do that kind of team expectations meeting, then the content on the right is how do you as a leader engage each of your people one-to-one. -one. So the stuff on the right is the meeting structure that I would utilize with a direct report every two weeks. So you wanna boost his or her morale, you do the stuff on the right every two weeks. So begin a dialogue with the direct report by recognizing something that he or she has done well. Could be a few things that you can pick, but that's a very, very good boost of morale or ask him or her what did they think the wins that they've had, personal or professional, in the last few weeks? And what would they say? Because it could be really basic. I was in a coaching session yesterday, and all he talked about during this section was the things that his son had done while they were on vacation because of his son's challenges and things that were happening for his son. So he was heavily focused in on what his son was doing. Awesome. Right? Just get it out, like talk through it, just have that right in a meaningful way. Of course, deliverables, those traditional things that you're accountable to do, that's great. Um, we as leaders also have to constantly be thinking about what do we do to take things off of someone else's plate, right? So if we know that there's some sort of challenge or some sort of thing that's blocking someone from getting to success, how do we help them find that? How do we take that block away? So that's what the next step is, is those challenges and opportunities. How do we convert a challenge into a possibility for the person, right? And then the last piece is really just looking at reflection and goals. What are the things they need to accomplish in the next week or two? So I'm a big fan of figuring out how do we help a person reflect on his or her own journey. I got an email about 11 o'clock last night from um, CEO and a lot of change happening within that organization. And I woke up at four this morning because uh, I saw the email come through and I wanted to respond to it purposely. So I woke up at four and sent a pretty long one response back. But I, most of the discussion was about all of the wins that he had had. Because he's facilitating some very, very heavy change inside of his business. And that's hard. And when I last talked to him, he said very unequivocally, there is no one else at my level or at the board level that is recognizing the work that I'm doing. And I was like, shit, like, it's really lonely at the top. So I went all in on appreciating the wins that he had had. Cycled through all my notes, what are the things that had been accomplished, and regurgitated them back out to him. and said, don't forget hard thing that you have to do in the next couple days, I get it, but don't forget about all the wins up until now. So cycle back through the notes that you have for your team members. Think about the wins that they've had and remind them. Okay? It's what Cialdini, who's a psychology professor at ASU, he calls the law of consistency. So the more consistent we are in the delivery of something, the easier it is for a person to absorb it as being valid. Okay, that's a big one. So a couple of other, like, additional ideas here that I think are valuable is one of those avenues of appreciation, whether it's an internal recognition system, whether it's something you say to a person one-to-one, -one, five love languages, something spontaneous, right? You get to pick, but what are those ways that you can deliver that? 702010 came out of Google a number of years ago. Like it doesn't cost anything. 
So these little things matter because the more that a person feels that there's a reason for them to do what they do because of their colleagues and the success he or she is having, right, you're going to get more success in that way. So a little bit of alternative comp, I won't dive into that. Um, the younger generation, when it comes to wellness, seems to be really, really specifically focused on wellness. You guys feel that? You have that happening on your teams too? But what are you guys doing at the organization level to focus on employee wellness? Is there anything that is happening? Are we giving out like free marijuana? Like, what, like what's happening? Are you going to see the EOL and stuff or no? So at my organization, we have a, a website specifically designed for a various wellness activities. Nice. And if you hit a certain number of points in a certain time frame, then for the year following, you get $60 back a month on your paycheck. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. Tips. So we, our organization, have um, like walking challenges. So we get them their Fitbits, actually get a free Fitbit out of it. And then at the end, team team with the most steps win, and then we give prizes out to the top female, top male, and then in the next few weeks we have a biometrics event. Um, we have sites all over the place, so we have one on the East Valley, one West Valley, one at our corporate office, trying to get everyone to participate, but we try to have as many um, wellness events as we can, uh, at no cost to the employees at all. Yeah, it was amazing. It's a great example. Anyone else? So just a piggyback because we're from the same organization, we also reimburse to teams to participate in a Walking, walking events or running events in town, and it's open to everybody. We reimburse those fees for employee and additional person. Mm -hmm. So really, kind of through our through our insurance program, we're allocated a certain number of dollars for wellness, which makes it a lot easier for us because it's not really out of pocket. It's either need it, and so we try to maximize those dollars. Victoria is actually the head of our wellness committee, it. and it's true. I mean, yeah. younger and millennials, they're all over it. They want to be. They're calling her day and night. About which program works for me and what can I, how can I next? And it is, it's very altruistic, it's very much about them, but it's, you know, something that we can do. We even do a um, gym reimbursement, whether it's yoga, kickboxing, gym. If you can track any kind of fitness, we will reimburse you for something. <laughs> I think that's great. I wrote the words underneath their mass customization for learning, but I think it's applicable here in that. When it comes to health and wellness inside businesses, we have to mass customize options for our people. And what I mean by that is it's essentially an a la carte menu of ways in which a person can engage. So to Katie's point, they're calling you, Victoria, and saying, like, what's what's the way that's best for me? That's mass customization, right? It's giving them the option to customize for them in a deep, meaningful way. So a la carte menus of ways that people can engage on wellness, especially younger folks, is going to be really helpful. Because Generation Y, Generation Z, so Y is 1980 to 2000, G is, uh, Z is people were born after 2000. That's a big thing for them because they're so high up Maslow's hierarchy of needs already. <coughs> they're constantly getting to the point of how do I push my body so far that I test it. Right? I've done DNA sequencing on my body. I've done epigenetic tests. I know what's going on in my gut. The things that I know about my body, the average person in society doesn't know yet. But we live in a world where the technology exists that Illness is literally optional. It's literally optional. People don't ever have to get sick again, but they choose to. So the technology is there to help us if we choose to take advantage of it. You guys have heard of Dave Asprey and Bulletproof Coffee? Anybody Bulletproof Coffee? Yes. Okay. So Bulletproof, he also has a great podcast, Bulletproof Radio. But Dave is a self-appointed biohacker. right? So he just does ridiculous things to his body to try to live to be 180. As a but the things that he has access to, right, because of the, his history in Silicon Valley, money and stuff that he has, he can do really, really awesome things with body. So if you follow his podcast or drink Bulletproof Coffee, which is a very special coffee, butter, and coconut oil. Never right? Yeah. Okay. So if you want, if you want Bulletproof Coffee, those three <laughs> ingredients together matter. Okay. So each person is different, right? It may or may not work for your body, but just think about it. Okay, so, and the last one here, uh, management by walking around, like, this is a return to things that worked a long, long time ago, but boosting employee morale is as basic or as simple as you walking around the halls and just saying, hey, what's going on today? What's going on with your kid? What's going on with your pet? Like, what did you do over the weekend? How's it around the golf? Like, whatever that thing was, those small little minutes of time that you invest in a person are the very thing that keep them engaged and boost their morale meaningfully. So please don't overcomplicate it, right? There are so many things that we talked about in the last 50 minutes that are valuable, 
but sometimes it's really just as simple as setting an alarm on your calendar or a time block on your calendar for five to 15 minutes to just walk around the office. Okay? It's really that simple. So what we talked about, right, is what's the current state via uh, Gallup State of the American Workforce. Uh, we looked at the, the pyramid chart that kind of talks through a couple of things with regards to Maslow's hierarchy, but how generational similarities are, we can find them, we just have to think about the context in which someone was raised. Right, that's a really big determinant of how happy they're going to be at work or their perception at work. A little bit about vulnerability, right? The Google project is really an important one, but I think it's roundtablecompanies.com if you want a vulnerability sexy t-shirt. They actually have a card game that's like Cards Against Humanity, but it's called Vulnerability Sexy. So, so imagine going to a party and plopping the card deck down and everybody's wasted, but yet they're talking about vulnerable things. Like, how awesome would that be? Like, I would leave parties all day long with us. <laughs> I think there's a lot of value in connecting someone's organizational purpose and their personal mission, so please find ways to think about doing that. We talk about DISC and motivators, like tailoring communication to a person will easily boost his or her morale. Um, people tend to score what they help to create, right? So think about what are those things that you do to try to change initiatives. And then meeting structures that happen very recurrently are basic and simple, but most organizations don't make time for them because they're so focused on other things. And in the last couple of decades, our society has moved from very large organizations to a very, very big shift to smaller to medium-sized businesses that are growing and developing quickly. So we forget about the basics of meetings. Okay? And one final thing here is that I think this initially idea that came from Peter Drucker, but I think it's an important one, is that every single person around us, it doesn't matter who he or she is, right? CEO of the business down to folks that are on the front line. If you take the mindset of treating them as though they were a volunteer, your mindset about how you interact with them is going to be different. There are 22,000 not-for-profits in the state of Arizona. Right? If you think about the leaders within those not-for-profits and how they treat volunteers within their business, right? why don't we just take that same mentality towards the people that we work with every single day? It's a very simple thing. But if we do that, I think that's where the power and success is. So, if you guys want to sign up for my newsletter, a book that I just wrote called Authenticity is the Way. If you text the word discovery to 66866 right now, it'll send you the book. Okay. But I've got the book. You can see it on the open corner. I've got a podcast that I push out every couple of weeks, a couple of online classes if you want to learn about communication styles or EQ. And then July 12th, I'm going to do another workshop about kind of a similar topic around employee engagement. Um, so we covered a ton of ground, right, in about 50, 55 minutes. No questions up on the board. Yeah, Katie has questions, but what questions do you guys have? <laughs> Somebody else has questions besides Katie. <laughs> or Katie's going to start. Okay, you, I'll give you one. So I think um, one of the challenges that I see in my organization is that I, we're a 500-person construction company, male-dominated, multi-generational. And so when you talk about what motivates each generation, um, I think the challenge that I have is that it's really exciting that we're bringing in young people and we're rejuvenating and we're working on a, more, a generational change. So the 50, 60-year-old guys don't see that as really cool and exciting, and they see that as a, as a challenge. It's kind of an epiphany when, when you send that up there is that when I talk about how the new is exciting, they don't see it as exciting. So that was good. I really learned sure. that. But um, the vulnerability piece, uh, in construction and with male-dominated technicians, there is um, a stigma that vulnerability is weakness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I do okay because I'm female, but it's okay for me to be weak sometimes. And so I try to do that ahead of, you know, get ahead of like, hey, when you do this, it makes me feel this way. And it's okay for me, but they, they're not getting there. Yeah. So I don't know what, if anybody works in the same, a similar environment where it's and we were just talking about finances the same way, mm -hmm. um, what are some ways that you kind of disarm and make vulnerability sexy, like you said, and not a weakness? Because I'm struggling with this, this yeah. one. Okay, anybody? I mean, that that's human nature, too. Yeah. Nobody likes to feel vulnerable. No. I think a lot of us were raised that that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that that is kind of across the board, not necessarily just for older generations. But how yeah. to handle it, yeah. especially industry-specific, yeah, sure. is... Interesting yeah. because uh, I work for a CPA firm, and you know some of them were grew up in 
what was considered, I would consider a sweatshop these days. It's like, you know, they're learning <coughs> coming and there's a, a spreadsheet this long and somebody comes and rips it away from them with their pencil and eraser and says, start over, even yeah. if it was right or wrong. Yep. It was, you know, the, the back in the days, I swear, Arthur Anderson, they were mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's like the Anderson way, bully somebody until they get good and yep. then, oh, guess what, you're okay now. But they have that mentality in the back. There, there is no the engagement piece. I guess is I'm trying to tie all my questions into one. Yeah, that multi generational technician DC yeah. guy doesn't care about your weekend. Doesn't so, talk about your favorite things. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's so true. So yeah. command and control worked in the 80s and 90s. Like it was a method that worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. Right, but we moved away from command and control as a leadership capacity to now we have to like collaborate and engage, right? That's a very big transition. So as an example, a task-oriented person, a DE on the disk, they're heavily influenced and persuaded by subject matter experts. Okay? So it's easy, right, if you know that one of the persons you're talking to is persuaded by a subject matter expert, well, you put one of the most influential subject matter experts, external or internal, in front of them and tell them that vulnerability is okay. Or show them doing that vulnerable thing to the rest of them they will slowly start to adopt it, okay? For a high C person who's very task-oriented as well, the likelihood is that they're not going to want to share it, but their brain thinks very linearly. So if you get them to just trickle one small thing in the next week, one small thing, in the next week, one small thing, they'll go there. So a D person is a subject matter. For a C person, it's time. They need it to happen recurrently. So it's not let's share everything at once. It's how we get that one small thing out. And then over time, they will get to the point of sharing more and more. But in a leadership style, yeah. the leader in that role. I mean, I can go to my C guys and say, you know, they'll talk to, I had a guy yeah. yesterday, went to go back to Cuba, came to my office, talked to me for 30 minutes about it. But he doesn't know anybody on his team. He doesn't ask any questions. You know, he's got a girl who just had a baby. He doesn't ask her about the baby. I mean, he, yeah. his brain is not working that way. And when I talk to him about it, it's soft skills, right? He's a get work guy. He's out there trying to get work. I don't have time to talk to her about her baby, and I don't care. So. <laughs> and probably said that, right? <laughs> yeah, they said yeah. that. So the, the, when, when they're over time or whatever, even the subject matter expert, yeah. how long when you're trying to change that behavior or helping these people by changing your communication style to help them grow as leaders, how long till that sticks? Versus a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and oh god, okay, we're back here again. Yeah. It, because it's for each conversation, it's a little bit, and then we're back here. Yeah, I'll answer it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what kind of relationship you have, but I have someone like that where I work. He's um, our director of engineering, so he's he's one very like I call him the silo. Speaking of silos, and like yeah. you're such a silo. They're silo you just, builders. You need to right. look at everything else. So we constantly have conversations about. Okay, now how is that going to affect this? Or we have that kind of working relationship. Yeah. But his administrative assistant is, we just had a baby shower for her at work. And like, I texted him the night before. I said, okay, what did you get? Jennifer, for the baby shower tomorrow. <laughs> what do you mean I have to get a gift? So I don't know. I'm like, ask her how she's doing. Yeah. So I constantly, I don't know if you have that type no, of relationship, I, I but sometimes that. it's just that. You know, product. But then he'll yeah. say, like, Katie told me I'm supposed to ask. Oh, no. Maybe after, like, once the night of conversation, you know, as long as he's doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, hang on. So, Julia, something? Um, and then, and then, right. Yeah, I, I was in somewhat a similar situation not, not so long ago, um, like this. And that's why I was put into the role, because my leadership couldn't couldn't connect with with the team. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in to to bridge that. He would connect with me, he just wouldn't collect, connect below me. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that I think is a lot of older male um, issue is is they 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 don't see themselves down here. They've been they've been you know out of the weeds so long. And I, I think that that um, you know, they don't, that, that's a form of weakness almost. Well, and the people management side is like a sidebar. It, their job yeah. is to do this stuff right here. Because we did the same thing. We brought in, I think you know who I'm talking about. We brought in somebody who was a, a relationship-focused leader 
technician, and he has completely abdicated to her. Like, okay, well, now I just have to talk to you, and you're going to talk to all those people over there. Yes. But all those people have worked for him for 20 years. So yes. they don't understand, like, well, what's happening now? She's my boss, and I don't talk to you anymore, and what happens? So it's, it's, okay. it's a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, yeah so, I think um, we get into a world that recognizes that emotional intelligence is just as important as any other quality. It's so different that you can't kind of mandate it or teach it, yeah. right? If you want to know people, you have to be known, right? And so rather than mandating it or putting it on a job description or something, I mean, I think that's something that walk around by management by walking around. You have to be known to people. You have to offer that first mm -hmm. a lot, yeah. a, a whole lot. Or, um, <laughs> I think that's... And that's sort of interesting. We're, we're talking a lot about guy technicians, but I see it as much generationally because that's like a safety thing. Uh-oh, this dude's trying to like get to know me personally. That's not safe, yeah. <laughs> right, with different generations. So um, I don't know. To, to know people, you have to be known. Yeah. So to, you to a comment on that being a male-female thing, I have a really good CFO friend who has done the management by walking around, come out and walk around and, you know, get to know her people. Well, then I connected with one of her people later after she left, randomly, and they didn't consider it management by walking around. They considered it dive bombing. <laughs> that she would just show up and it's like, oh, God, she's here. Okay, we have to talk to her. <laughs> yeah, and she thought a totally different thing from it. So... so. So there's the value in over-communicating that the top of the organization has initiated some new organization-wide initiative that communication is going to be valuable. So a couple of things. There's great points amongst everybody. Uh, if an external subject matter expert who the leader admires is doing it, the probability of the leader doing it is far higher. So who does that leader admire, like societally? And then find content from that societal construct and bring it back down. The other thing is that we would almost have to tie the person's compensation to EQ. So if you do that, that's the fastest way. I realize it's hard, I get it. But, but think about if one of the strategic objectives is to make some sort of an adjustment. And the way that we make that adjustment is through developing emotional intelligence. Right? It's through that. So if the person's comp is set up, or if we created an internal recognition system, like Joey's team uses an app called You Earned It. Well, what if one of the triggers inside the You Earned It app was people receiving comp for being emotionally intelligent, right? or doing things that were EQ-based? So if it get external perspective, try to find a way to figure out a way to tie that person's comp to the EQ and then reinforce that you can come up with it. You can to do that in a very, very meaningful way recurrently. Right? So I'd have to know more about the person specifically because the real honest answer is hypnotherapy. So if you guys aren't following um, uh, Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza talks an awful lot about the four brainwave states. So when we're out in public doing this stuff, we are in beta. So our brain's in beta. But when we learn the most and we change the most, we're in the second level, which is referred to as theta, which is traditional meditation, sleeping, all that stuff, mindfulness. So in order to change someone's perception of what's right or wrong, we have to move their brain into a theta state, change the thinking, and then move them forward back into theta. So, that's not a joke. That's hypnotherapy. <laughs> but that's happening today. right? It's happening today at scale for human beings. Because that's... Sorry, that's happening. Right? She's playing the music. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. um, but that's really happening at scale. Like I told you, I have an energy healer. Like I literally see an energy healer that looks at all of the chakras on my body purposely to try to figure out what to open up and then put me into essentially a hypnotherapy state to rewind back to those moments in my past where I was really struggling with my family and to wipe away the negative feelings from those moments in time reassociate them with a positive, more positive emotional value and bring me back to today. Because my childhood was kind of gnarly. I mean, it just wasn't that great. But 
that help, right? Releasing through that methodology has been so helpful. So energy healer, hypnotherapist, you pick what it is that's meaningful for you, but find a way to shed the emotion from your past because from the third trimester until age seven, the baby's brain is in theta 100% of the time, right? So in that phase of human life, all we're doing is absorbing and learning. So what our parents teach us during that phase becomes our life for the rest of our life. Unless now we shed that stuff. But be very, very mindful of that because that is really the game. Like from the third trimester, literally third trimester until age seven. And he's like, what did I do to my son? No, but think about it. It's really important. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Equal Chance to Be Unequal. I'm Michael S. Siever. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and like, share, or comment on this podcast on michaelssiever.com, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Go forth and be awesome.